You are listening to episode 12 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Previously on Quarter Share. It was exquisitely crafted with an ivy vine pattern running the full length. I'd never seen anything quite so beautiful, and my eyes caught some lettering in the middle of the vines, an ornate script that blended with the curves of vines and leaves. Boy toy. I was sweeping out the galley when he gave a strangled cry. I thought he was choking on a biscuit, but he was pointing at his tablet. The empty container wasn't empty anymore. Pip had pulled up its contents and found that it was filled with the exact list of items he'd given to Mr. Maxwell. Pip, Mr. Maxwell said. Thank you, Mr. Costas. A cogent and reasonable assessment. Please notify me if you identify any other opportunities. Pip just closed his eyes and didn't appear to breathe for a long time. Chapter 20. Margaret System. 2352, January 5. The run into Marguerite Station was fast. It was interrupted briefly two days after jump in the middle of the night when the whoop-whoop of the environmental alarm went off just before midnight. It woke me out of a sound sleep and I was groggy, but remembered where the suit locker was and went to it as soon as I was able to find floor space to get out of my bunk. By the time I got there, Bev had it open, was handing out suits as people filed quickly past her. I took one and kept going until I found a clear spot in the deck. Groggy as I was, I remembered where to grab the suit and how to shake it to get it opened up to wear. By the time the announcement was done, I was zipped into my suit with the helmet locked down. I wasn't the last one by a long shot. Everybody made it on time, though, and after the captain's congratulatory message, I stripped off my suit, set the used tag on it, and crawled back into my bunk. The question of selling played me all the way to the station. "'How are we going to sell the belts?' I asked Pip one night as we cleaned up after dinner. He said, we just talk to people who retail belts, anybody who has a clothing store, that kind of thing. Being new to the game, I suppose I shouldn't have worried that much about it. Pip didn't seem worried, and he'd been at it a lot longer. It still bothered me, though. Pip's response was so nebulous. Later in the birthing area, I asked Bev, how are you going to dispose of your belts? I don't know, she said. I usually just find somebody who wants what I have and sell it. But how do you find them, I ask. Me? I go to the flea market. Usually there's somebody there who sells something similar to whatever I've got and is willing to pay for new stock. Okay, that makes sense, I said, but doesn't that eat into profit? I mean, you're basically having to sell it at wholesale, right? Bev nodded. Yeah, it's the price of doing business. She shrugged. Why don't you rent a stall and sell retail, I asked. Bev smiled. It's not worth it for a few belts. Stall rental would probably eat the difference and you'd have to stay there till you sold them. This way somebody else does the work. Sure, I can see that, I said, but doesn't everybody have something to sell, and if we all got together we could amortize the cost of a booth across all the goods? Bev stopped smiling and blinked at me. Several times. It was rather disconcerting, to be truthful. Out of the mouths of babes, she muttered. Pip came in and crawled into his own bunk just then and asked, Who are you calling a babe? Bev just shook her head. Not that kind of babe, but that's brilliant. Thanks, said Pip. What was it? Bev poked him playfully. Not you, you goof. Him. She pointed a thumb in my direction. What'd he say? asked Pip. Rent a booth, answered Bev. Pip turned all owly and blinky himself for a tick before saying, Yep, I taught him all he knows. Afterwards, Bev started circulating around the ship, talking to people about the idea, and looking for a few others who might want to go in on the booth rental. 
were hampered by not knowing what it would cost, but several of the crew agreed so long as they didn't have to hang around and actually sell stuff. I mentioned it to Sandy Belterson when I ran into her on the track that evening. If you have any trade goods, I told her, Pip Bev and I are thinking about renting a booth at the flea market on Marguerite Station to sell our stuff, and you're welcome to add yours if you like. You think it'll be worth it? she asked me after a few ticks. I shrugged. I don't know, but it seems like it would be worth a shot. We're trying to find out what it costs to rent a booth now. That'll give us an idea about whether or not it's worthwhile. If it's too expensive, we won't do it. But we're not going to be in port all that long, so we're trying to line up people with stuff to sell before we hit station. I think we're going to try it and see how it works out, assuming we can swing the rental and we have enough stuff to put out. That's a really interesting idea, Ish, she said after another lap. I've got a few things I'd be interested in moving. Let me know if it goes forward, okay? I agreed, and we finished our laps together. The next afternoon we docked at Marguerite Station. Pip looked up the terms and conditions on the flea market. Basic space rental was ten creds a day. For an extra cred you could get a table, too. It was a one-day minimum. That was it. Pip and I looked at that for a long time, before Pip said, It's too good. There must be a catch. Maybe, I said. But I know who we can ask. Pip looked at me with a raised eyebrow. Mr. Maxwell. Pip's eyes got big for a tick, but he nodded his agreement, and we went in search of the first mate. We found him in the office. It was where he spent most of his port time. We knocked and went in. Mr. Maxwell observed us for a tick, and then asked, How can I help you gentlemen this fine day? In his flat, uninflected manner. Pip looked at me as if to say it was your idea. I took a deep breath and spilled the plan. At the end of my recitation, I asked, So, what are we overlooking? Is there some hidden cost or some rule about crew renting tables? Mr. Maxwell pursed his lips and narrowed his eyes. I waited because I was pretty sure he was thinking really hard. That, or he was considering just how to kill me. Either way, I wanted to keep a low profile. Just so I understand this, Mr. Huang... You're proposing to rent a booth at the flea market so that the crew members who have private trades have a place to sell their goods retail rather than wholesale. I allowed, yes, sir, that's about it. Who's going to work the booth, he asked. We'll need a couple of volunteers from each watch station, I admitted. Pip and I, of course, but I don't have any others yet. We're still trying to figure out if we can do it. Mr. Maxwell swiveled his gaze to Pip. You're in on this. Pip said, "'Yes, sir. Mr. Wong and I, being automatically on opposite watches, agree that we, at least, can cover the booth so it can stay open every day we're in port. You're giving up your liberty so that your crewmates can have a safe place to make private trades.' Pip and I both gulped. "'Yes, sir,' I said. "'Well, sir, it's only during business stands, so it's not like we're totally giving up liberty,' said Pip. I thought Mr. Maxwell smiled at that, but it was gone too fast for me to be sure." Mr. Maxwell let us stew in our own juices for about two solid ticks before he said, I have some good news and some bad news, gentlemen. Pip and I shot a glance at each other before he continued. The crew is prohibited from engaging in any activity which might be considered competing with the legitimate trading mission of the ship. That's the bad news, Mr. Maxwell said. The good news is the ship is under no such constraint. I was having trouble untangling that statement, but Pip was already grinning. Mr. Maxwell continued, We frequently rent offices, warehouses, and other portside facilities when they are required for legitimate ship's business. The captain and I have been struggling with how to keep the crew safe without restricting their enthusiasm for private trading ever since Darbat. You two gentlemen seem to have hit upon a solution so obvious that we would never have thought of it. 
Let me run this idea past her and get back to you. I suspect you'll be able to set up shop tomorrow, but I'll let you know later this evening. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir, Pip said. Mr. Maxwell nodded. You're welcome. Dismissed. We took the hint and headed back to the galley to set up for evening meal. First night of liberty or not, neither of us was leaving the ship until we got this idea hashed out. Almost nobody came to the mess deck for dinner. A few watchstanders were all we expected and all we saw. Near the end of dinner, a message pinged into our tablet simultaneously. It was from the captain, and confirmed that the ship had rented booth 478 at Marguerite Station's flea market for a duration of four days beginning at 0800 the following morning. We were instructed to pick up our authorization certificate from the market office no later than 0730. It was listed in the name of McKendrick Mercantile Cooperative. Pip looked at me across the mess table where we were sitting. Okay, I'll take the duty tomorrow. You get it set up. Me, I exclaimed. You're the traitor genius. It's your idea. You have to do it, he said, grinning. I just shook my head. I left Pip with cleanup duty and went in search of people to help me in the morning. My first stop was the birthing area where I found Bev just coming off watch. Well, the captain approved the flea market, I told her. What? she said. How'd the captain get involved? Pip and I asked Mr. Maxwell about whether there'd be any problem if we rented a booth. Since we're on opposite watches, we could make sure that there was somebody there during the day. The rental itself is ten creds a day, and it's a simple pay-as-you-go plan. Sounds good. What happened? Bev asked. Seems there's a problem if we do it as a crew of the Lois, but Mr. Maxwell said it wouldn't be a problem for the ship to rent the space for the benefit of the crew. The only catch was he had to run it by the captain. We got the confirmation from the captain herself a few ticks ago. The space has been rented in the name of McKendrick Mercantile Cooperative, and anybody in the crew with trade goods will be free to use the space to sell their stuff. Bev grinned. Well, I'll be switched. You did it. I smiled. Yep. Only problem is, Pip has the duty tomorrow, and I'm a little nervous about setting up for the first time by myself. She nodded. I'm off tomorrow-ish. I can help. Besides, it'll give me a chance to look over the other booths, she grinned wolfishly. Might find something else to spend money on. Thanks, Bev. I mean it. No worries. Besides, I can't have my boy toy wandering around unprotected now, can I? She teased. Well, with big bad Beverly watching my back, there's nothing I'm going to be worried about, I teased back. We both grinned and got on with the evening already in progress. I found Sandy Belterson on the track, learned that Brillo was off the ship already, but would be returning for duty in the morning. I went down to environmental section where I found Francis and Diane on duty and filled them in on the plan. They each had some trade goods and were more than happy to join the fun. I asked him to pass the word, and went back to my bunk to rack out. When the watchstander came for Pip in the morning, Beverly and I got up too. We put on ship suits and headed to the galley for breakfast, and to consult with Pip. I made the first urn of coffee while Pip set up Cookie's omelet station. Bev accepted the first cup from the pot and let Pip practice his omelet skills on her, while Cookie finished putting up the bread. Inport mess duty seemed so laid back by this time it was ridiculous. Cookie, Pip, and I were a well-integrated machine each doing the required tasks without the least interference from any of the others. Any one of us could probably have handled the breakfast alone, although Cookie's presence was felt throughout the day in the breads, pastries, and desserts that were his pride, his joy, and his signature. We all settled in the mess deck then and talked about how to proceed. Pip started. You two should go and take your belts. Get the booth set up. We can send the other crew up to find you later. Sell as many of the belts as you want, and I'll take the big bundle up tomorrow. Bev, you have dibs. So I won't put mine out until you're done selling, okay? She grinned. I'm only planning on taking four of the eight, she said. If we do this on St. Cloud Orbital, too, 
we're probably going to make a killing, and I want to have at least half of my belts available for that. Pip nodded. You're going to take yours up, though, right, Ish? Yeah, at the moment it's all I have to sell, I said, and I'd like to get something out there. I'll take the eight I bought with Bev. It won't matter if I sell them all, because we still have that big bundle. The larger question is how much to charge. Bev said, I was thinking thirty credits. That's more than double what we paid for them. Pip shook his head. If it were me, I'd start at fifty and let him talk me down to thirty. These are top-shelf goods. The leather is amazingly good, and the tool work is exceptional. The rock jockeys and metal munchers will have money to spare, and if you don't take it away from them, they'll just ruin their livers with strong drink. Bev smiled. Point taken. We'll see what the market will bear, and that'll help you move the big bundle later. Pip nodded, and it seemed logical to me. I just hope some other people come to sell in the booth, I said. They will, Bev predicted, but maybe not until they see how it works out. Pip said, I have one more question. How do we reimburse the ship? Bev and I looked at each other, and then back at Pip. Reimburse the ship? Yeah, Pip said. If you and I had taken this on, we'd have just absorbed the cost in the day's business, but this is the ship. We can't expect the rest of the crew to absorb the expense, can we? We need to cover ten creds a day? Bev asked. Something like that. The captain paid out forty creds for the rental, Pip told her. No table, I pointed out. I wonder if I can add that at the office this morning. How much is a table? asked Bev. A cred a day. Woo, can you afford it, big spender? she asked with a grin. Pip said, I think that's the answer. Ish, you and I were going to cover this expense when we asked Mr. Maxwell if we could do it. I agreed. Give me twenty now. I'll add twenty to it and reimburse the ship while you're out setting up. I pulled out my tablet and transferred the credits to him. Deal. While I was there, I noted I'd been paid again, and I was building up a respectable balance even after having paid out the two hundred back on Gugara. Okay, Bev said. I need to get into some civvies and go get seriously commercial for a bit. She looked at me with a twinkle in her eye and said, Come on, boy toy. We got work to do. We all laughed and started moving. Pip took the dishes to the galley, and Bev and I headed for berthing to change. As I slipped on my jacket, I couldn't help but remember that leather coat with the black silk lining in Gugara. I kind of wished I'd gotten it, but the mass would have chewed into my trading. It only took a few ticks, and we were headed for the lock with our belts collected in a single duffel. At the lock, the officer of the watch, Roan Sham, gave us a bundle of blue cloth to take with us. Compliments of the captain, she said. It turned out to be a banner about two meters long, with letters sewn onto it. We got it stretched out so that we could see the letters spelled McKendrick Mercantile Cooperative. From the captain? I asked Roan. That's what the note said. She dropped it off just before midwatch last night. Beverly was looking at the fabric. This is ancient, she said. This banner has to be at least fifty stands old. Ron and I both shrugged. What's the McKendrick Mercantile Cooperative? I asked. I don't know, said Bev, but I'll bet there's a good story behind this. Come on, though, or we're going to be late. We refolded the banner carefully and tucked it into the duffel on top of the belts. Then we bolted for the lift and headed to the flea market office to pick up our tags. The flea market manager was a nice enough guy. I suppose you have to be to manage a major orbital flea market. He didn't even seem terribly intimidated by Beverly. He wore a bright green vest that clashed horribly with everything else he was wearing. Across the back it said, Marguerite Flea, in big yellow letters. On the left breast it said, Fergus, manager. He was happy to rent me a table for the four days, and let me pick the one I wanted out of a battered collection stacked up in the back of his office. "'You just bring it back tonight, and it'll be safe till tomorrow,' he said. He handed me a plastic-coated badge with all the pertinent information—the dates, the raids, the services, along with a big 478 on the face. 
He checked the box beside table on the badge as he did so. Just clip it to the drape on your booth so the security people know you're you. Take it with you when you leave for the night. The mag tag in it will open the doors when you want to come in in the morning. It's good for today and the next three days. After 1700 on that day, it expires. You can toss it after that. Your booth is over that way, about 40 meters. Just follow the signs painted on the deck. Good luck with your sales day. Bev and I thanked him and headed out in the indicated direction to find our space. We had half a stand before the doors opened and the public would be let in. We weren't the only ones setting up, and the flea market seemed like it was coming to life after a long night's sleep, which, in truth, I suppose it was. It took us five ticks to find the place, but no time at all to set up. The table was a pull-the-legs-and-they-lock type, so it was nothing to settle the table and open the duffel on it. We pulled out the banner and debated on where to put it. There was a pipe scaffold behind us with a drape on it. If we'd had some wire or string, we could have strung it up there. Some pins would have let us pin it to the drape, but of course we had no pins. Ultimately, we just laid it on the table like a tablecloth and began laying out the selection of belts on it. We stashed the empty duffel under the table. The display looked horribly amateurish, even to me. Bev and I looked at each other. We're not really prepared, are we? I asked. She shook her head. No, not really, she said with a smile, but it'll come. The other vendors were coming in and setting up. Across the aisle was a potter a youngish-looking guy with sandy hair and an artificial foot, who slid up a grav pallet all set up with his displays. He expertly locked it down, and he was ready for business. The grav pallet seemed to be the standard way of setting up, as there was a procession of them winding in from the lifts. If this catches on, Bev and I started to say at the same time, and then laughed. An obviously married older couple trundled up to the booth beside us and began unloading a simple cargo tote. The woman, with mouse-gray hair, and wearing boots, a pair of jeans, a check shirt, and a vest, began directing the man, a nearly bald guy in a nondescript utility jumpsuit. Her voice carried clearly over the rising noise level as she bossed him about. "'Not there, Virgil. I need that here.' Her voice was a smooth alto, but carried a whip-crack undertone that made Bev and I instantly feel sorry for Virgil. "'Come on, Virgil. The floor will be open soon, and I need this set up now.' She continued in this vein for some few ticks. Poor Virgil just couldn't seem to get it right. They unpacked signs, display racks, and other paraphernalia from their little tote. Every time she gave him another order, Bev would have to look away, just to hide her giggles. I joined her on the far side of the booth and elbowed her. It's not funny, I not laughed. That poor guy! Bev nodded. I know, I know, it's just... Behind us we heard, Virgil, I've told you a hundred times, not there. It goes on this side of the table. I had to bite my lip, and Beverly looked down with her hand on her brow to hide her face. Her shoulders were shaking from trying to suppress the laughter. Luckily, about that time, there was a loudish papong, and the big entry doors at either end of the deck rolled open, and a tide of people surged into the market. In just a few ticks, customers began sauntering past the booth. Virgil finished setting up and took himself off, leaving the woman to tend the booth by herself. Bev and I stood awkwardly behind the table and watched as people strolled by. There was some interest in the belts, but more in Bev. She was dressed in her black leather pants, jacket, and boots, though today she wore a cream-colored shirt with a stand-up collar. Even with the buzz cut and the piercings, the shirt softened the edge a bit in comparison to the aluminum plate top she'd worn on Gugara. I was in my only set of civvies, and compared to her, I was about as nondescript as Virgil had been. "'Looky-loos,' Bev commented softly. "'What?' 
This first group, she commented with a nod to the crowd, they're the looky-loos, just wandering around looking. Eventually they might buy something, but for now, I nodded. It didn't take long for the experience to get boring. I took out my tablet and started entering the list. What are you doing? Notes, I told her. Next time we need clips so we can hang the banner on the drape. Pip is going to need some kind of rack to be able to display that bundle of belts. Bub stretched her back. Stools would be good. It's going to be a long day standing, I'm afraid. I added that to the list, along with thermos of coffee and grav palette with a question mark. Then I had to put it away as people actually stepped up to the table to examine the belts. The next three stands evaporated as we had a steady trickle of buyers through the booth. Bev did the actual haggling, and I listened out of one ear while I was explaining to the next buyer that the belts came from Gugara and they were hand-tooled by one of their craftsmen. It seemed that most people who took the time to actually pick up one of the belts and feel the texture and suppleness of the leather wanted to buy one, even if they couldn't afford it. We purposely set the price high, and were in no rush to drop it too quickly, something the hagglers learned right away. Nobody seemed too put out, though, and Bev sold two at thirty-five creds pretty quickly. About that time, Diane Ardell showed up with Francis in tow. He was lugging a duffel stuffed with silk scarves, brocaded vests, and delicate china plates with oriental scenes painted on them. The plates were wrapped in sponge foam and individually boxed. Bev and I moved the belts over to one end of the table and let Diane and Francis set up on the other. The booth was looking more appealing now with the brightly colored fabrics and shining glass. It didn't hurt that Diane was wearing jeans that looked just one size larger than paint and a scoop-neck top. With her cheerful smile, she was soon attracting as much attention as Bev. Francis and I knew enough to stand back and let the pros work the table. After a couple of stands, there was a lull in the action, and we just all stood around grinning at each other. Diane had sold about half the scarves and a couple of plates. Bev had taken the four belts she wanted to hold back for St. Cloud and put them in the duffel, but sold all the rest of hers and a couple of mine. This rate, we'd be out of belts by mid-afternoon. But she'd made a profit already, and one more from my pile would put me in the black as well. Diane and Francis seemed pleased, too. Bev announced, I need to stretch my legs. Diane said, I'll go with you. You boys, mind the store. We'll be back. With that, they marched off toward the restrooms, heads together in some kind of feminine conference. Francis and I were left staring at each other. So much for window dressing, he said wryly. What, I teased, you don't think a little beefcake will work? I pulled up the leg of my pants to display the pale, hairy flesh beneath. He gave a rueful grin and shook his head with a laugh. A group of people came in the booth at that time, and Francis and I had our hands full. I managed to sell a belt at almost forty creds. Francis sold two of the plates and a vest. The woman who bought the vest, a rich emerald green with gold threads, had red hair and green eyes and was pretty cute to begin with. She slipped that vest on, though, and was instantly stunning. She never took it off the whole time she was haggling for it. Francis sold it for a hundred and twenty creds. Nice, I congratulated him as they left. Thanks, he said. She was an easy sell, though. She wasn't going to leave without it. I could still see her walking away through the crowd. Yeah, I don't blame her. About that time, Diane came back with a beverage carrier of coffees and a bag of sandwiches. Bev's gone prowling, she said. Is that one of the vests I just saw walking off? Francis smiled. Yep, got a hundred and twenty for it. Diane grinned and gave him a kiss on the cheek. Thanks. She smiled at me. I only paid twenty for that on Darbat, she said with a wink. The coffee was muddy and bitter, and the sandwiches were soggy, but it all still tasted good enough. The steady trickle of people through the booth was consistent. We took turns putting down our sandwiches to talk to them. I sold another belt before Bev got back. 
She sashayed up to the booth like she was pretending to be a customer and announced loudly, What darling belts! Too bad they don't have buckles! We all laughed until she produced a silvery chunk of metal inlaid with a blue stone and tossed it onto the table with a thunk. It was oblong, about the size of my palm, and carried a slight convex curve across the front. I didn't recognize it at first, and then I realized it was a belt buckle. Francis scooped it up before I could reach it. Is this turquoise? he asked. Bev shook her head. That's what I thought when I saw it, but it's lapis. Diane says as gorgeous as what it is. Bev nodded and fished one of her reserve belts out of the duffel. It only took a tick for her to connect the belt and buckle and hold it up for display. We all just stared at it. Oh, my, said Diane. The belt was attracting attention already. Several people had gathered, eyeing the buckled belts, and Bev played to the crowd. Sorry, folks, this one's not for sale, but my friend here has more belts, and he'd be happy to sell you one. You can buy the buckles at booth 216. The gentleman there has a nice collection available at reasonable prices. About a third of the crowd headed off in that direction. A third stepped up to the table and began looking over the few belts I had left, and the rest just wandered off. When the group thinned out, I managed to get Bev to fill in the details. I was wandering around after we hit the head and I ran across this booth. He has a big pegboard of these belt buckles, all about the same size and shape, but inlaid with different minerals. I don't know how he does it, and I didn't ask, but the results are spectacular. No kidding, Diane said, fingering the buckle. Bev reached into the pocket of her jacket and pulled out a smallish bundle. I got four of them, one for each of my remaining belts. He gave me a good price on the proviso that I not sell them here but take them off station. She looked at me. I told him he'd be along shortly. He sold these to me for fifteen creds each. He's asking twenty-five to thirty-five, depending on the stone. Diane had handed the buckle to Francis at this point, and he said, By the weight of this thing, the metal's probably worth that much. Bev nodded. Yeah, the mass is going to be a problem. I need to weigh them, but I bet they weigh at least a hundred grams each. That's ten per kilo, I mumbled. I have mass enough for fifty, but only creds enough for twenty. Bev nodded. Depending on how well the belts sell, you'll recover some of the mass and a lot of the money. How many belts do you have? asked Diane. Pip and I got a deal on eighty of them back on Gugara. You guys should pay me a finder's fee, Bev teased. Hey, I spotted them first. Kids, if you're going to fight, please take it out of the booth, okay? Francis said with a grin. A new group of customers came up to the table then, and we had to behave. But I snapped a quick digital of the buckle with my tablet and flashed it over to Pip before I stood to answer their questions. Traffic was pretty steady for the rest of the afternoon. Francis and Diane sold all the scarves, almost all the plates, and three more of the brocade vests. Francis only put out one at a time, and each time it sold he rummaged in his duffel and pulled out another. How many of those do you have? I asked. Three more, he said. Putting them out one at a time makes them seem more valuable, like one of a kind? I asked him. He shrugged. They are one of a kind, just like the belts, he said. I just put them out that way because it's easier to keep track of. I chuckled to myself and made a mental note. Never overlook the obvious. Late in the afternoon, an attractive iron-haired woman in a smartly tailored blouse and slack stepped up to the table and looked it over. How are things going? she asked. Very well, Captain, Bev said, elbowing me discreetly. I managed to suppress the gasp of recognition. Yes, sir, very well. Thank you for helping us out. She turned to Francis and Diane. What do you two think of the idea? she asked. Francis spoke first. It's been great, Captain. We've sold almost all our trade goods, and it's been fun. Diane noted, Yes, sir, I've been dragging those plates around for months. We've unloaded most of them and got good prices, too. My mass allotment is going to be wide open after today. The captain smiled. Excellent. 
She turned back to me and asked, Is there anything else you need? I shook my head. We came in not knowing what to expect, and the banner was a surprise. I've made some notes to myself to get some clips for tomorrow so we can hang it up on the drape behind us and get a tablecloth. The captain's fingers strayed to the blue fabric, and she stroked it gently. Excellent plan, Mr. Wong. This banner has dressed more than one sales table, so you're carrying on a proud tradition. Is there anything else? Bev spoke up then, Trade goods, Captain. We need to let the rest of the crew know what we're doing so that they can take advantage of the booth. The captain grinned broadly. Pip has been actively recruiting today. I think there'll be enough to sell tomorrow. She smiled at all of us. Anything else? We looked at each other, and I said, No, Captain, you've done a lot for us already. Thank you. No, thank you, Mr. Wong. This is a good thing that you and Mr. Carstairs are doing for the ship. Thank you, sir, I said. She nodded to us all and started on down the aisle, but turned back. Oh, Mr. Wong, when you get back aboard this evening, please collect Mr. Carstairs and report to my cabin. Around twenty hundred would be good. I'd like a status report. Yes, sir, I said. My pleasure. She smiled and, with a jaunty wave, disappeared into the crowd. As soon as she was gone, Bev slugged me in the shoulder. You didn't recognize the captain, she exclaimed. I've never seen her in civvies, I said, rubbing my arm. How was I to know she'd be here? You've seen her practically naked in the shower, and you can't spot her in her civvies, Diane laughed. I looked to Francis for support, but he just shrugged. Well, if she'd come up to the table in her towel, I might have, I said. Bev slugged me again, just on general principles, and then we proceeded to sell the table bare as the last crowd of buyers came through looking for end-of-day bargains. About 1645, the speakers gave a ping-ping-ping warning. The customers wrapped up whatever deals they were doing and began filing out. The big door started closing very slowly at 1700, and when the papong tone sounded again, most of the vendors had already taken down the booze and were guiding their graph pallets and cargo totes toward the door. Diane and Francis helped by folding the banner neatly while I pulled the badge off the drape, and Bev collapsed the table. We dropped the table off at the office and headed down the lifts. As we were riding down, Francis said, Diane and I are going to grab dinner. Either or both of you want to join us? I shook my head. I need to get back to the ship. Pip is going to be chewing the bulkheads to find out how it went. Bev declined as well. I got duty in the morning, and my legs are killing me. I want to get back and get into the sauna. The banner and badge went into my duffel to pass off to Pip, and we separated at level six, Bev and I heading for the ship, and Diane and Francis heading off to dinner. We checked in with the officer of the watch and had our respective mass allowances adjusted. Mine went down, but Bev's went up because of the buckles. They did mass a lot for their size. Curiously, the banner didn't get charged to either of us, but to Lois McKendrick. Bev and I looked at each other, but didn't ask. Bev headed for the sauna. I stowed my gear, changed into a ship suit, and headed for the mess deck to see Pip and Cookie. It had seemed like a long day. Thanks for listening to Episode 12 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is from the Lucky Black Cat a hornpipe in A minor, recorded by James Curran and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com golden. 